Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. For our first podcast chat of 2024, I'm joined by filmmaker Michael McGlaris to talk about his latest film, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Give All to Love. It's an impassioned and endearing documentary about one of America's greatest thinkers. 2023 marked the 220th anniversary of Emerson's birth, and Michael's film will introduce him to an entirely new audience. Here's a brief excerpt from the film. With Emerson, there was no difference between literature and life. Emerson's written work expands and contracts like a pair of lungs. The air breathed the formative atmosphere of the America of the first half of the 19th century. The 50 years when we would finally touch the Pacific and would also march inexorably towards a war with ourselves. Emerson's words opened the lid of American consciousness. Words filled with complete conviction, such as these words from the speech, The American Scholar. We will walk on our own feet. We will work with our own hands. We will speak our own minds. A nation of men will exist for the first time. Trained as an opera singer in the U.S. and Europe, Michaels performed widely as a singer and an opera company director. He's also founded a well-respected international business consulting firm, which is just one of several businesses he has created. He's directed and acted in two films, produced three albums of rock and alternative jazz, and lectured in art museums across the country. In 2003, Michael and his wife, Terry Templeton, formed 217 Films, with a mission of celebrating the unique character of our nation's cultural heritage. Their essays in film explore the impact of American art and cultural life and its unique place on the world stage. Ralph Waldo Emerson, Give All to Love, which tells the story of Emerson the man, the father, the husband, and eventually the guiding spirit of our American soul, is, like all their films, available to screen for free at 217films.com. That's T-O-W-17films.com. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please do follow and subscribe. Now on to my conversation with Michael McGlaris. Hello, Michael McGlaris. Welcome to Making Media Now. Hey, good morning, Michael. It's great to be with you. Happy holidays to you. Same to you, sir. So we are here to discuss a film that you have written, directed, and narrate called Ralph Waldo Emerson, Give All to Love. And in the film, you refer to Emerson as the father of American thought. So aside from that descriptor, who was Ralph Waldo Emerson? Ralph Waldo Emerson, to my mind, Michael, and I want to be clear with you, I have been an Emerson fan for a long time, but if you're an Emerson fan, 
you continually discover things about Emerson. So there should be nothing new, right, to you. And I know that you are as well and, and so many out there. I think what's really important to say about Ralph Waldo Emerson is quite literally he is the father of American literature. Literature, as we know it in the 19th century, now in the 21st century, everyone who has written and has written passionately and has written thoughtfully owes a little something, and sometimes a, a great deal, to Ralph Waldo Emerson. It's abundantly clear to me. And Ralph Waldo Emerson lived from 1803 to 1882, uh, and and he began uh, writing uh, pretty young in his life, originated in in a family of preachers, ministers. What do you trace his sort of line of originality in terms of bringing original thought to the American uh, literary marketplace or just uh, literary followers that wasn't just a carryover, say, from European thought? Well, uh, as Emerson makes clear, very early on in Nature, in his first great published work, Nature and elsewhere, he is all for severing ties with Europe. And he makes that abundantly clear. Now, to be clear, uh, he made a number of trips to Europe, and he had friends there, and he felt rooted in the European tradition of writing and of thinking. But he was very much a radical, much more radical than we realize. And I think what's important is to make a comment about what really launched Emerson into the world. And what launched Emerson into the world was actually a great tragic moment in his life. He lost his first wife. His first wife, Ellen, had tuberculosis. They married when she was 17. She died at the age of 19, if you can believe that. The tuberculosis was the scourge of 19th century America. If, Emerson, if Emerson's first wife, Ellen, had lived another seven years, 10 years, 12 years, perhaps born him a child or two, all of what we know about Ralph Waldo Emerson would not have come to pass. What liberates him, unfortunately, because the death of this young woman is a very unfortunate circumstance. He was passionately in love with her. What liberates Emerson is his ability to pick up and make that first trip to Europe and see for himself where the wisdom of Western civilization and Western culture is derived. He comes back. He's got notes in his satchel for the writing of nature, the great monumental explosion on the intellectual scene, nature. Nothing like it ever written in American literature before that. Nature is what launches him and launches American literature. Without the death of his first wife, Ellen, he may have just continued as seven generations before had done. Michael, been a pastor, an important pastor at an important congregation in Boston, certainly would have written, certainly perhaps would have lectured. But we wouldn't have the Ralph Waldo Emerson we know if that great tragedy hadn't occurred. So you believe that this, the, the level of this grief was really an impetus for exploring a whole new regions of, of thought and inquiry within him? It, it not only was that, that's a good point, Michael, thank you for making it. It was not only that, but it expanded his mind. Mm -hmm. How could this 19-year-old woman die? Now, when he met, met her and fell in love with her, she was, as I say in the film, she was actively dying. He, you know, I don't mean to sound crass, but he kind of knew what he was getting into, or he yeah. suspected, because he had a long history of, of uh, tuberculosis in his family. He'd recovered from it from it, uh, himself, a point I make in the film. But, but let's be clear, this death 
under these tragic circumstances, expanded his mind and made him ask the question, what is this death all about? What is this wasted life all about? How can I pause, reflect, take this fact in and make something up? So you mentioned Nature as being sort of that seminal publication uh, that really brings to the world uh, the new avenues of thought that he was exploring. And I think contemporary audiences, if they if they hear about a book called Nature, they may be thinking about, oh, so along the lines of, say, Rachel Carson or Edward Abbey, or, or maybe more contemporary audiences also would be thinking of somebody like Bill McKibben, that a book with the title Nature... Uh, the first thought might be, oh, this is about this is an environmental tract. This is another sort of screed to the preservation uh, of the of the natural world. But for Emerson, nature is a far more encompassing term, is it not? Nature includes our interior self, mm. and that's what's important. And you know, Rachel Carson, what what a wonderful writer, and I'm such a great fan of Rachel Carson's writing. But let's be clear, Rachel Carson is a direct descendant of Ralph Waldo Emerson. Sure. Yeah. Here's the difference. Emerson, as you, I think, rightly suspect, and so many of your listeners do as well, Emerson is not only charting outwardly the course of nature, he's charting inwardly our course whereby we appreciate it. Uh, transcendentalism, that weird, wonderful, loose, non-religion, non-philosophy that we spend so much time trying to define, what is basic and important to transcendentalism is the improvement of self. I put you into nature, and I give you some tools to think and reflect and see, and you come out of that experience, not only a better and more profoundly important human being, but you take back with you into society what you've learned. Mm -hmm. And that improves the fabric of society. The improvement of the fabric of society is what Emerson is all about. The, the, the solitariness in nature is the tool. What's the goal? What's the great present that we get from nature and from Emerson? What we take back into the world we live in. Can you recall in your own life when you first encountered the work of Emerson and what it was about his work that really resonated with you? Uh, I will tell you what didn't resonate. Uh, Emerson's <clears throat> essay, Self-Reliance, was forced upon me as a <laughs> freshman in college at the University of New Hampshire. And, you know, I was literally taking the manuscript and taking the book and turning it upside down to see if it read any better, <laughs> sideways or in any other direction. I thought he was the most profound, crashing bore. <laughs> but when you're 17, maybe you don't know quite what you think you do, despite what your own personal opinion uh, of your talents might be at that age. Emerson is, is one of those writers that creates a kind of an accretion around him. You read him, you reread him, you pick up a phrase, you open a paragraph, at random, by the way, and what leaps out at you is Emerson the philosopher, Emerson the thinker, Emerson the passionate realist. Uh, you know, when he says in nature that uh, a work of art uh, is an abstract or epitome of the world. He's literally saying everything we have and are and can become uh, is inside of nature. And how do we appreciate it? By allowing nature to crawl inside of us. So my first encounter with Emerson was pathetic. 
But when I returned to Emerson in my maturity, 30 years plus later, and now with this new film out, uh, I am more and more and more convinced, not only that he was a deeply passionate man, but that he is the father of so much around us that we don't understand and appreciate yet. During his time, say, with the with the publication of Nature, um, how long was it before the revolutionary character of his work uh, began to take hold among whoever the thought leaders were of the time? It was almost immediate. Uh, Emerson is 33 years old when he publishes Nature in 1836. He self-publishes it, by the way. And mm-hmm. I, if I could, let me digress for a second. Sure. Because how do we publish things nowadays? We create blogs, don't we? Or go up on Facebook or make Twitter comments. Um, you know, I've got the tools here, and so do you, and so do so many of your listeners, to create a blog in moments today. We are in the midst of self-publishing. But yet, Emerson self-published his first book. His name wasn't even on the cover. What's really important is nature is an explosion. He's 36 years old. He has codified his thinking. Well, in that first trip, particularly to Paris, and the Jardin des Plantes, where, where he spends so much time. He comes back, he finishes nature in, in, in Concord, Massachusetts. He buys his home in 1835, Bush, where the family lived. He publishes it, and it's an explosion. The profound impact that that had on Walt Whitman, I try to make that point in this film. Mm-hmm, yeah. Beyond belief, nothing, nothing is ever the same in American life and literature ever. 1836. And to that point, no one would have even conceived of writing something as profoundly radical, as breathtakingly lyrical as nature. It is an explosion, a veritable explosion. Both in your film and in uh, Emerson's work, uh, oftentimes there's mention of the word soul. And in fact, there the concept of the oversoul is introduced. What was Emerson speaking of when he used the word soul james marcus who appears in my film who Mm -hmm. is a wonderful writer and also now become a good friend his new book uh, glad to the brink of fear will be out in march at princeton university press and james and i have had many conversations privately about that uh i'm going to go back to the issue again if i can michael of how you use what you learn from emerson in your everyday life Mm -hmm how it improves who you are or amplifies who you are or enables you to be uh, someone trying to realize uh, your own potential. For me, the oversoul is the place at which we all connect. It is the amalgamation, great grand combining of souls, not only those who are living, but those who are dead, not only at one with the universe, but one who ha- uh, with all living things, the Oversoul is the monumental amalgam of our, of our connectedness, individual connectedness that comes together in one place at one time. And that's the beauty of Emerson that we've landed on, because the development of transcendentalism is about the development of self. But if self doesn't come back into the community and join with other souls, then transcendentalism is a complete waste of time. And he takes on the um, the issue of conformity also quite frequently to be a nonconformist. And is your estimation, you know, there's the, there's the whole notion of uh, a re- rebel without a cause. 
Emerson most definitely had a cause when speaking of nonconformity. What was that? Uh, remember, he said, he wrote, rather, for nonconformity, the world whips you with yes. pleasure. As a kid growing up, uh, headed to music school, headed for a while to a professional singing career in, in, in opera in Europe. Uh, wow. From, coming from a small town in New Hampshire. Talk about nonconformity. No, I, I was there. I lived it. I think what's really important for Emerson is he's a radical, but he's a New England radical. Mm-hmm. Is a buttoned-up, starched-collar man who gives the outward appearance of being a pastor or a banker uh, or a philosopher, but seething, and I mean seething, Michael, inside that man is a depth of passion. No one, no one could have written nature without it. No one could have delivered the lectures without a deep-seated passion. No I like that word. I like that word, seething. Uh, one of the studies of Emerson that I've I've read was by Robert Richardson. The title of it: "The Mind on Fire." The the great definitive biography of 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 Emerson, absolutely, and and so, and I owe so much in this film to Richardson, and uh, and I, I made that comment outwardly. Incredible writer, you're totally right. And don't you get when you read that book a sense, right, Michael, of this seething passion this is not a a, a buttoned up guy on the inside it's oh. the reverse of that absolutely right yeah absolutely yeah. talk to me a little bit about the relationship between ralph waldo emerson and henry david thoreau i think in some people's minds they become interchangeable and yet there's a lot that distinguishes them and there's a lot that unites them oh uh well, I try to tackle that issue uh, with the time remaining in this film, which is a little bit why the film is two hours and 24 minutes, because that was a, the friendship section is an important section, I think, in the film. I would say that the relationship between Thoreau and, and Emerson is, I would describe it as complex. Mm-hmm. In the early days of the relationship, uh, Thoreau was an acolyte, was a disciple, was a believer, and Emerson patiently saw what Thoreau's potential was and groomed that potential as a friend, a a distinct friend, part of the family. Uh, As time went on, um, there was a break in the relationship, and I've I've got a pretty strong idea what that break was caused by, because as Emerson got older and more successful as he toured across the United States, he got how shall I say it, impatient with Thoreau's, you know, sort of crotchety nature (laughs) and his uh, lack of being able to uh, amend himself to the evolving world around him. Emerson was a man of the world. And and Thoreau was distinctly not. At the end of their relationship, there's a touching moment in the film where uh, Emerson, suffering with Alzheimer's, can't remember Thoreau's name anymore. I think you may know the passage of the film. It's a very touching mm-hmm. anecdote. And Elidian has to remind you. Complex relationship. There is no Henry David Thoreau without Emerson. That's been absolutely clear. There is no Walden without Emerson. Mm-hmm. The seed of Walden starts with nature in every respect. The friendship was deep. It was a love affair between these two men. It went south, it went sour. The end of their lives, they were still dealing with each other, but it was never quite the same. 
One thing I find sort of ironic is that Emerson, uh, despite the breadth and the variety of tone, really, within his writing and his reach and his interest, um, he has not, his work, his ethos has not been commodified the way the thinking of, you know, other thinkers has. I think about... uh, Henry David Thoreau, for instance, you know, whether or not you've read them, uh, uh, Walden or Civil Disobedience, um, you know, you may own a T-shirt that says simplify, simplify. You may have a bumper sticker on your $65,000 car that says simplify, you know, attributing it him to uh, Henry David Thoreau. I think about, particularly over the last decade, there's been a huge industry around the marketing of the work of the Stoics. And... It, it, it is always, I've always been a little bit perplexed. It was like, how are we missing out on Emerson? He, and, and again, back to your original point, he is the preeminent American thinker. Oh, he is. He is. Uh, at, I have a theory. It's just my theory as a filmmaker. Uh, the theory is that what gets in the way of our massive appreciation of Emerson, what gets in the way is we try to read one of the lectures. Yeah. <laughs> we get stopped in our tracks. And James Marcus, my friend James Marcus, makes this point in his new book. I had the pleasure of reading two early versions of the book before it's gone to the publishers. And he makes the point. He makes the point is, is he essentially says, stop worrying about reading it. Just open any one of the essays someplace and start. Yeah. The very fact that he doesn't begin and end and drag you along sort of horizontally, Michael, to a conclusion forget about it. It's just poetry. So I think the major impediment to to putting Emerson in his proper place is people open up the essays, the lectures, and say, oh my God, where in the hell is this guy going? Right. In this non-horizontal, lateral approach to thinking. Emerson is literally bouncing all over the place. But it is glorious bouncing. And I think <laughs> that's most definitely. And that's why, you know, that 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 just underscores the value of your film, because, yes, that is an approach that one can take. Just, you know, leap of faith, open the essays, just give it a go. Uh, you know, like an epic poem, it probably shouldn't be read in one sitting. You know, take chunks, think about it, think about the um, uh, the references that he's making. But your film really does the viewer and the 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 lover of knowledge such a, a great benefit in the sense that you provide us that there's a a biographical thread that you follow but as importantly and and this is not an easy thing to do visually or through the script you do bring about the the development of thought and the evolution of thought and one gets the feeling that at the end of his life, in his 77th and 78th year, evolution of thought was as mandatory and necessary for Emerson as it was in his late teens and early 20s. Oh, you, you've hit on it. Very, very fine uh, comment about that. You, you got it, and I appreciate that. Um, as I began this writing this film, I candidly didn't know where I was going with it. I, you know, I was a little bit like Emerson. You don't know where the essay is going. And I didn't know where the script was going either. I knew, as I know with all my films, all my films I've known in advance how it would begin and how it would end. Uh, I've always known that. And I don't know why I know it, but I do. And so this film begins and ends exactly as I planned it. 
it's the stuff in between, Michael, that was the problem. Right. <laughs> but I, as I was writing this film, what I realized was where I seemed to be headed in an almost subconscious way was Emerson the Man. What kind of friend was he? What kind of husband? What kind of father? What kind of writer? What were his influences? There has been so much written about Emerson, and this wonderful new book by James Marcus will write and add much more to it. But where I wanted to go is what was his relationship with Lydia? And I think what emerges from this film, I tried to say it very clearly, is if there's no Lydia, there's no Ralph Waldo. I say, I think something like in the film, uh, there can't be any Walt Whitman without Ralph Waldo Emerson, and there can't be any Ralph Waldo Emerson without his wife. So, Michael, when you're thinking about wanting to make a film about a man who wrote and lived and influenced so much thinking, but all of that at least began 200 years ago, what type of considerations are you making in terms of how do I make this applicable, relatable for a, for a modern audience? That's a tough one, and, and you've landed on a very important question. Uh, Emerson was born in 1803, uh, 1823. He was in his young manhood. It's 200 years ago. How do we make ourselves understand Emerson in our own times? I think the way we do it is to put him in the context of his own time. It's not to move him into our time, which I think is perhaps not the best way to appreciate Emerson. Mm -hmm. It's to ask a simple question. Is glorious energetic, creative genius. Where does he come from? Well, he, he's, he's given birth uh, in, in his own time. Mm -hmm. And that's very, very important. I think understanding how Emerson is reacting to the encroachment of civilization on the idyllic town called Concord, a, a preoccupation of Thoreau, for example, in Walden, is very important. Uh, Thoreau complains about the fact that there's a railroad going up behind his hut, right? <laughs> And that Irish workers are there singing their Irish songs and keeping him up at night. Emerson, who was much more clubbable and much more cosmopolitan, went out into the world in search of material that enabled him to go back into his solitary existence. Think about what I just said. He says, I'm not solitary when I'm studying in my, my study, when I'm writing, when I'm reading a book. I must be in nature. But yet notice... He'd tour 50, 60, 70 cities at a time. Mm -hmm. He was the first touring rock star in America. Most definitely. The first intellectual to make his living by standing in front of people and reading from his essays, most of which was completely incomprehensible to the people he was talking to, but it didn't make any difference. Somehow the message was getting across. And so I think the way to appreciate Emerson in our own time is to remember how seminal he was. When we get to that sort of seminality of his being and his writing, everything becomes much clearer to us. And his writing moves particularly from the abstract, if, if one were to view it as that, to very, very relevant during his time when the issue of slavery and the abolition movement uh, is introduced. Tell me a little bit about that and how how his feelings around the topic of slavery aligned with his feelings uh, of the oversoul, of self-reliance, of nonconformity. 
Emerson was a child of his times. And I think that's vitally important. If we expect Emerson to hold, to have held in 1836 or 1846 or 1856, all of the views we hold in our own modern woke existence, he will crash and burn for us. Sure. The man of his time. Uh, in, a, in a lecture I gave just before the film came out, I, I referenced something which may illuminate your, your question. Uh, in 2007, I, I recorded the entire poem, The Song of Hiawatha. It's on six CD. We're actually going to be putting it up and streaming it shortly. Hiawatha, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Gorgeous, psychedelic, almost hallucinogenic poem in its beauty. Is marred by an anti Semitic comment on the very last page. <laughs> so I'm in the studio up in Portland, Maine, recording this thing over, over many weeks. And I'm saying to myself, I don't know, I'm losing heart about this project. I'm, I'm saying to myself, this glorious poem that I want to see the light of day on the 200th anniversary of the birth of Longfellow is marred by this anti Semitic comment on the very last page. Up to that point, it is a gorgeous, breathtaking. I decided to record it anyway, and I recorded with the anti-Semitic comment in it. Why? Because it's the historical record. Should Longfellow be completely banished from our sensibilities because of that anti-Semitic comment? Absolutely not. He was a child of his time. Unfortunate, dreadful comment, but he was a child of his time. Should Emerson be banished because he made some disparaging comments about black Amer uh, Native American, black Americans? The answer is they were despicable comments. But I'm not going to blow off the entire earth of Ralph Waldo Emerson because he is a child of his time and must be taken in that context. So the straight answer is he didn't embrace the anti uh, the, the abolition movement like Lydian did. The opening of the film, she's got black flags draped all over their house, right? When he did take it up under extreme pressure, he took it up because he couldn't hold back anymore his moral contempt what he was seeing but he was not by nature a joiner he found right. the abolitionist strident i make that point in the film Absolutely. but when he did come out he came out swinging he was a child of his time with all his great qualities and all his faults combined and you, and you mentioned the black bunting that that uh, Lydian uh, drapes their house with at the beginning of the film, and that is a reaction. Was it the Fugitive Slave Act that that, that she was protesting? She was uh, protesting much because of the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850. But she was pro by 1855, which is uh, the beginning of the film takes place on July 4th in 1855. Uh, she is uh, she she's a rabbit anti-slavery mm -hmm. and and by this point so is emerson mm -hmm. she drags him kicking and screaming let's be absolutely clear uh into the uh, abolitionist movement but once he's there he's there solidly but without lydian's help and this is yet another reason to celebrate lydian emerson among many many more not only did she bear him four children not only did she put up with his months and months of absences not only did she, did she create a home environment which enabled him to think and write, but she taught him lessons about slavery, and those are valuable lessons. Mm -hmm. You make an interesting point around 
almost regardless of the cause, Emerson, by nature, was not a joiner and 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 held suspicion, <laughs> essentially, to the whole concept of membership, which makes him frustrating uh, for those individuals since his passing, you know, since since his work has been out in the world, who try to attach his thinking uh, as the impetus for particular movements. Um, in, in, in reading um, around, say, the, uh, uh, the movements in the late 1960s in the, in the United States, I've often read that, you know, these hippies were, were, were drunk on the, on the readings of Ralph Waldo Emerson that just said, hey, man, if it feels good, do it, which nothing could be further from the truth. Because any, any indulgence uh, to uh, the self Emerson piles upon personal responsibility onto that whole notion of self-reliance also. Yeah, you, you, you landed on a good point, and I make a point with respect to the January 6th crowd, some of which embraced Emersonian independence the same way. <clears throat> but I go back to what I said earlier in our discussion, which is none of Emersonian of philosophy, none of Emersonian thought, none of who Emerson is, makes any difference if all you're going to do is not rejoin society. It doesn't make any difference anymore. The whole technique of transcendentalism is about internal self-improvement that you then take back into your world. And, you know, I'll read one sentence from the incredible uh, essay, The Oversoul. Within man, he writes, is the soul of the whole, the wise silence, the universal beauty to which every part and particle is equally related, the eternal one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Come back from your sojourn into the work of Emerson, refreshed, rehabilitated, and ready to join the humans. So we've we've talked at length about the the origin and the path of Ralph Waldo Emerson. I want to talk a little bit about the origin and the path of Michael McGlaris. So you're from Dover, New Hampshire. You I attended am. the University of New Hampshire. Uh, former opera singer, uh, opera uh, opera company director. Uh, uh, business management consultant. Uh, I read someplace where you, and maybe you were misquoted, but you don't like to be referred to as a Renaissance man, which I found a little uh, depressing because I was about to refer to you as a Renaissance man. <laughs> so I'm curious, when I look at your film company, which is called 217 Films, you take these very deep dives into what I dare call pretty esoteric areas, at least to contemporary ears. I want to know about your formative years in terms of, um, talk about a mind on fire. When did you begin to open yourself up to these different strains of emerging American thought? I, I am uh, 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 very deeply interested in American society and culture. I, I am a deeply proud American. I love our country. I love its people. I love what we've accomplished. Um, I even, to be honest, Michael, love our faults because mm -hmm. we are a democracy attempting continually to perfect itself. And when I made my first film, I was 51 years old. Uh, that's kind of late to start anything, to be honest with you. 
Mm-hmm. But I made my first one. I'm pleased to report that my ninth film, now completed, that every member of the crew on my first film is still with me. Wow. Uh, yeah, no, uh, they're a great group of people. That, that but, speaks quite highly to what kind of a director slash producer you are, that's for sure. A good deal of that credit goes to my wife, Terry Templeton, my friend, my muse, my partner, my executive producer. She makes all things happen. But every one of my crew members is still with me. And as we embark on our next film, our 10th, they will be with me again. And so what's really important is to remember something that I wasn't trained as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. I'd like to have a basic storyteller. My whole life has been occupied with stories and telling stories. And I think what's really important is our films are geared around uh, or geared towards the telling of the story. If there isn't a story there, mm-hmm. there isn't a real story. We just don't make the film because I can make a documentary film of the classic talking heads kind. Right. I know how to do it after, nine, after making nine films, but it's not our style. These essays and films that I make, I become deeply and passionately committed to the cause. These are homages. I yep. wouldn't spend money and make a film on someone I didn't passionately like or even love in the case of Emerson. But yeah, so very I, true. I've, I've adopted a position, uh, and my position is welcome world to my films. Be prepared to be taken on a journey that nobody, I hope, is taking you to. And if I stimulate your curiosity and you leave the theater and want to learn more, then damn it, I've done my job. Yeah, most definitely. And I think that 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 genre, that that filmic essay, which is exactly what your what your work is, um, it's definitely a rarity. Uh, And it I was when I was watching your film, I was reminded and I don't know if you're familiar with this. My guess is you will be. There was an Australian film uh, art critic uh, named Robert Hughes, who made a series in the 80s. Robert Hughes is one of the gods of our house. Absolutely. Oh, is he really? Okay. Dedicated a film to Robert Hughes. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I just remember being blown away. I think it was in the, in the 80s. He did a series for PBS. Essentially, it was telling uh, American history up until that time, but through its artwork. Absolutely. Yes. And, and I often think, you know, particularly in these hugely contentious times, and you hit on it with just just to say, I love America. You didn't say, I, I love the Democratic Party. I love the Republican Party. I love this particular state. You said, I love America. And when I think of the, ironically, an Australian guy, but the work of, of Robert Hughes, actually, I feel this way when I think of the work of Ken Burns. And now when I think of your work in your films, if more people were exposed simply to the uniqueness and the brilliance the the and the messy brilliance of american creation and american thought maybe it's the optimist in me that says we would realize that we are connected by far more important things and far more enduring things than we are separated by the really just the petty and the ephemeral mm. Good point. Uh, here, here is all I can say. It's one of the reasons why Terry and I made the decision that uh, you can go up on our website and stream our films for nothing. Yeah. Uh, that's very important. If, if Obviously, if it's a group showing or an institutional setting, we charge for those. It's how we you know, pay for our films. But uh, um, you or your friends can go on our website today and screen all nine of our films, and you won't be charged a penny. It is, and this sounds corny, 
but it is my way of giving back. America mm-hmm. has been very, very good to me. And this country, and it's the glorious tradition of my grandparents coming through Ellis Island, is somehow modestly realized in me. What's really important is all of us need to figure out a way to give back, and this is our way to do that. I mentioned earlier that you narrate the film, and yes. also that you're a former opera singer and so forth. And I have to say, when I was watching your film and 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 watching parts of your earlier films that you had also narrated, if you had asked me, uh, guess where the narrator is from, I would not have guessed Dover, New Hampshire. Um, I'm going to I'm going to guess that oratory is important to you. Did you develop a particular style of of, of speaking? Do you think? And it, was it in relation to something or someone that you heard, or did you, or or is is this just your vocal nature? You know, I think the straight answer is: as a kid, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16, I was involved uh, with theater activities as an actor, and got some excellent training. I, actually, at the age of 16, I was doing summer stock. I, I've had a background in theater, mm-hmm. but I would say that, I'm not correcting you, but I would give you a different slant. I would sure. say my primary interest is in language. Okay. I love American English, and I think it is possible to convey the enormity of depth of emotion with English. I speak French, I speak German, I speak Italian, I speak Greek. There is no language more beautiful than And I will tell you that as someone who makes films, my job is to distill, if you will, Michael, or to somehow figure out a way to take complex issues and make them easy and manageable to understand in a good context. And I think that's all about the use of of language. Uh, One thing which is vital for your listeners, I think, to connect with my films is to realize that we will take the time we need. I've had plenty of opportunities to show my films on PBS, um, but I have to cut mm-hmm. half an hour or 40 minutes out of my film, and I've mm-hmm. said, that's not going to happen. Only one of our films we've shown on PBS <clears throat> as a result. And I think what's really important is the story takes the time it takes to tell the story. Mm-hmm. Stick with me. I'll take you on that journey. That journey will reveal something about the person or the occurrence that we're uh, that we're talking about but you got to let me do my thing and tell the story if you do that i'll take you on that journey that's my goal that's my play what has been your experience uh in in terms of public showings of of your of your films um uh, have you done much of it and do you combine it with uh you know lecture and a screening whenever one of our films is shown it has been our custom in the past to be there Mm -hmm. uh it is a great way to lose money, Michael, I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah. But uh, when we did our film on the WPA, uh, yeah. Enough to Live the Arts of the WPA, we toured over 70 cities. And we would have as many as 500 people in the theater or as few as 20. And we showed up anyway. And we did Q&A, Terry and I did, and talked to the audience afterwards. And had a drink with a few audience members afterwards and talked about the film. I have a deep-seated need to connect. Mm-hmm. And that deep-seated need to connect is through the use of language and illustration and a story. Because if we can do something tiny in our own modest way at 217 Films to give people hope about our culture and our society, and we see that as our goal, we see it as a message, 
And there is so much to celebrate that it's time that we started doing. You know, in having this conversation and in watching your film, one thing that, that sort of keeps gnawing at me is I don't want viewers of your film, listeners of this conversation, to come away thinking, wow, that was an amazing guy. He did some great things back then. Emerson's Emerson is his ideas. The ideas continue. They live. They're relevant. And sure, he began his writing 200 years ago, but that's a blip in the time span of history. How do you, or maybe this doesn't challenge you the way it challenges me, how do you continue to make his work relevant to contemporary audiences and, you know, without getting didactic about it, kind of point out that we are still wrestling with similar issues and therefore we have the same opportunity of inquiry that that Emerson dove into. Yeah. I think the answer to that, straight answer to that question is pick up Emerson at random. Mm -hmm. See my film. Walk away with a sense of who the man is. Forget about the writing for a moment, okay? Forget about what you think you know about Emerson, right, Michael? Think about the man. And it is the man that I focus on in this film, I hope, to to advantage. And then go back and, and randomly pick up one of his essays, one of his lectures, uh, the book Nature, and just open it to a page and pay close attention to the linkage of those sentences. And there are two events in American life which, for me, uh, literally bring tears to mind. Beautiful events in America. The first event is when George Washington resigned his commission as General of the Washington had a chance to become absolutely and he resigned his commission, got on his horse, and rode back to Mount Vernon to be there in time for Christmas dinner with Martha. Mm-hmm. The history of our country starts with Washington saying, I no longer need this power. The history of American literature begins with Ralph Waldo Emerson telling us how to look inside ourselves for American-grown solutions to the problems we will face, not only in the 19th century, but the 20th and the 21st. If you let Emerson be your guide, I can almost guarantee you an improved human response. That's what's important. Well, I can't think of a more fitting way to wrap up this conversation, which has been immensely enjoyable. The film is Ralph Waldo Emerson, Give All to Love. The director, the writer, and the narrator is Michael McGlarris. The film can be viewed for free at 217films.com. Michael, thank you so much for your time and for this work. What a great uh, pleasure it's been to be with you. What a stimulating conversation. It's been a privilege for me. Thank you, Michael. My pleasure. 